Good evening, everybody. My name is Ian. For anybody who doesn't know me, the pastor here at Night Church, Dora Hope. Uh, why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Uh, we're going to jump into the first 16 verses in our continuation of the study of the book of Acts. This is one of those passages where as, as much as I preach on being bold, no matter what's in Scripture, you come to a passage like this and you go, ah, just why is this here? I'm going to skip it. The Almighty God is watching me right now, so I'm not going to. Here we go. Acts chapter 5. If you're not familiar with the story, um, hold on to something. Starting in verse 1, we read these words. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? So why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard and the young men rose up, and they wrapped him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. And there was an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you paid this amount for the land. And she said, yes, we paid that much. And Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord your God to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over, and over all who heard these things. And now at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were happening among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people were holding them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers in the Lord were added to their number, multitudes of men and women, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the multitude from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Bow your head with me one more time. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for when your word is just absolutely uplifting and the glory of it is just jumps off of the page and it raptures our hearts and it, and it, and it, it, it grabs our emotions, Lord, and you could say when it's easy, when your word is easy. And Lord, I, and I also want to thank you for when your word is difficult and when your word is challenging and when, when your word requires grappling because all of scripture is breathed out by you. God the Spirit working through fallible men. You put together the holy scriptures and they're perfect. They're infallible. They're eternal. Jesus, you yourself said that not one jot, not one comma or period would ever disappear from your word, from your law. And so Lord, I pray tonight that we would come to this passage with reverence, that I would come to this passage with reverence and submission, and that I would say only what it is that you want me to say. And I pray 
Holy Spirit, that by your influence, by your power, you would communicate to people in their heart what it is that they need to hear from this passage tonight, whether it's conviction or conversion or anything else. Jesus, we are here to listen to you. We are here to fall in love more deeply with you. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen. So this, this passage here is, there's, there's immediately two things that are going on here in Acts chapter 5. One is a continuation of the church growing. One is a, is a continuation of how counterintuitive the church can be. Whenever Jesus left and ascended into the heavens and he told his disciples to go back and wait for the Holy Spirit, it's because the work that the disciples, the apostles had to do was a work that was not going to be effectuated by their own intellect, by their own wisdom, by their own power, or by their own strength. This is the work of God, his kingdom eternal. And, and we are the living stones of God's kingdom. We are the church. We are the presence of Christ here on earth. That is what Christians are supposed to be. When Jesus said, you are salt and you are light, that is what he meant. We are more and more conformed into the image of his son, of God's son, Jesus Christ. And so the kingdom of God is counterintuitive to us because it works in ways that don't make sense to us. It's a kingdom that doesn't come forth with sword and spear and bloodshed. It's a, it's a kingdom that comes forth despite being subjected to sword and spear and bloodshed. And what we looked at last week was that even in the face of persecution, the church only grew stronger. Peter and John are arrested for doing a miracle that nobody could deny and then preaching that that took place in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. But it just made the church stronger. Peter and John then had an opportunity to preach the gospel to the Jewish Supreme Court, basically, which they otherwise would have never had an opportunity to do unless they'd been arrested, praise God for that. And then when they were released, they went back to their companions and the church was unified because whenever the outside world really starts to hate the church, those of us who will call this home We'll take each other a whole lot more seriously because we are all that we have. And we, we read that in verses 32 through 37. There's this selling of everything. It wasn't compulsion. It wasn't a command. It was, it was individual benevolence that led people to sell property and houses and other things to give to those who had need. And most scholars and commentators believe that most likely what happened is that at Pentecost, there was such an insurgence of believers that were from all over the Roman, all over the Mediterranean some of them just stayed put. And so they had to start over. They had come from somewhere near Rome or somewhere down near Arabia. They came to Jerusalem Feast of Pentecost and they stayed put. They heard the gospel, they got saved, they stayed there. And other people who were from town may have lost their jobs. Some reason or another, there was a lot of people that were in need in the church and the church was so unified and they had so much harmony amongst themselves that we read that they were just selling everything apart. So the kingdom of God is counterintuitive because persecution actually makes it go stronger. Persecution actually makes it better. Peter was able to submit himself to the authorities. He didn't pull a sword like he did in the, in the Gospel of John. He submitted to their authorities. They arrested him, but then when they asked him, he boldly said, it is in the name of Jesus Christ that this man is well before you. So he was submitted, but he was not a coward. Right on. That was a good test for him. That's powerful. The church was unified. That's powerful. They sold all this stuff to help one another out. That's powerful. Persecution helped the church flourish. That's counterintuitive. But we're also, what we're going to see tonight, that's part one 
because we have this continuation where a man named Barnabas in verse 36 is told to have sold a field and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet, chapter four, verse 37. And then we immediately are met with another couple that start, this sentence in chapter five starts with the word but, which means the opposite of that. Here's another couple. Here's another event. Here's another example of people selling stuff, but there's something wrong. And what happens is a terrifying punishment, and then even that makes the church grow all the more. Even in spite of that, persecution doesn't stop the church from growing. Something like this event, Ananias and Sapphira, literally just dropping dead on the spot, doesn't stop the church from growing. That's a mystery. But there's a reason why it happens. And so part one is things like hatred and malevolence and, and arrests and beatings and murders do not stop the kingdom of God from growing. Whenever that happens to the church, the church grows stronger. And what we're looking at tonight is the opposite of Barnabas from last week. A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. But they kept back some of the price for themselves. It was, and it was with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, they laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land? The, the, the first thing that I want to point out here is that what's not happening is that the church demands every dollar and dime that you have in your possession. And if you don't give it up, then you're gonna be in big trouble. That's not what's happening here. We're gonna cover that more in more depth when we get to verse four. But what's happening here is Ananias and Sapphira are, are playing the hypocrite. This is the contrast to Barnabas. Barnabas sold his land and he laid the money down and the church had been, it was in the beginning stages of being brutalized. So they were unifying, they were coming together, they were selling things, they were giving money away, they were helping those who had less in their community, and Ananias and Sapphira thought, well, you know what would be cool is if people knew that we sell this property, we get a big chunk of money for it, and we give all of it to the church, people are going to be like, wow, thank you, wow, good for you, look how devoted, look how faithful, look how benevolent, look how kind, look at how trusting you are. You're going to give us all the money that you got from that land, but they didn't really give it all. So they get the accolades, they get the pats on the back, but then they also get payday at the same time, which is why they were lying to the Holy Spirit. They didn't get in trouble for trying to save money. They didn't get in trouble. Their, their sin was not in the fact that they kept some money back. Their sin was in the fact that they said they didn't do that. The sin was in the fact that they were acting hypocritical. New Testament giving is always voluntary. The Old Testament, there is a command to give 10% of your grains and animals and all the rest. But in the New Testament, what Paul writes is that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And when writing about this issue in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this of benevolent giving. He says, each one must do just as he has purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. It's not under compulsion. You're not going to find that in the New Testament. You will give this much. That's not a command. You're required to give this. That's not a command. The Lord wants you to give. When you understand the gift and the benevolence 
of Jesus Christ, that will naturally cause your heart to want to give what it is that you have. And what Ananias and Sapphira have done here is they have rejected that idea. They've rejected that reality and they're trying to hold on to what is theirs and get a big reputation boost in the process. And that sort of hypocrisy is not only publicly and almost, I almost want to use the word voraciously condemned by Jesus, but they're also lying to the Holy Spirit. Listen to these words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 23, he's speaking to the Pharisees. He says, Matthew 23, verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 14, you hypocrites. Verse 15, you hypocrites. Verse 23, you hypocrites. Verse 25, you hypocrites. Verse 27, you hypocrites. And then he gets to the crux right here, verse 28. In this way, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Verse 29, you hypocrites. And then just to put the cherry on top, in verse 33, he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Which I want to inject right there that Jesus was blistering the Pharisees there. Don't get it mixed up. He was. But it wasn't because he was just blistering them. It wasn't because he was just shaming them. There was no vitriol in his heart. He wants them to be saved. And he's actually asking them, how are you going to be saved from hell? Jesus, Jesus is the one who told us, love your enemies. The very people who pinned Jesus to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. His heart is for us, but whenever he has to be harsh, whenever he has to be blunt, he is. And who in here doesn't think that sometimes that's actually necessary? Sometimes it's actually required to love somebody. If my little girl grabs a hold of something sharp, and I try to pull it away from her, and she holds on to it, I will rip it out of her hands if I have to. I'm bigger than her, I'm stronger than her, and I will do that out of love, and she'll whine and she'll cry, but I'm gonna take it away from her. And the Lord Jesus himself, how much more so? If we who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more your Father in heaven? When Jesus says, you hypocrites, he's not just calling names to call names, he's trying to wake people up. He says in John chapter 5, I say these things to you so that you will be saved. His heart is for human flourishing, and if he has to crush something to make that happen, he will. And their hypocrisy is something that he looked at, and he said, that needs to go. And he said it very strongly. And so this kind of hypocrisy is warned about in Scripture. And they're not just lying to human beings, they're lying to God the Spirit. Their hypocrisy wasn't just to men and women. It was to God himself. Verse 4, so while it remained unsold, it wasn't required of you. While it remained unsold, was it not your own? When, before you sold the land, it was your own. You didn't have to sell it. And after it was sold, it, it was under your authority. So why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but you've lied to God. The sad irony here is that what Peter is saying is that if you all had sold the land, well, the first thing he says is you didn't have to sell it. It was yours. But when you did sell it, it was still yours. It was under your authority. So they could have sold the land and said, here's 70% of what we got from our, from, from our land. We're giving it to the church. Here's 60%. Here's 80%. Whatever they gave. And that would have been fine because there's no command. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. We sold it for 150K. Here's 25K. Boom, done. No harm, no foul. Peter's like, why did you lie? And that's what's so twisted about sin is that sin twists us. It makes us do stupid things that are not necessary. 
And Peter's, that's what Peter is saying. You didn't need to do this. There was no reason to hide. There was no reason to lie. It wasn't even required of you to sell the land in the first place. And you lied not to men, but you lied to God. And this tells us something about the reality of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In verse 3, Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, he says, you have lied to God, which means that the Holy Spirit is a person. He can be lied to. Ephesians tells us he can be grieved and that he's God. He's one of the persons of the triune Godhead. When you lie to the Holy Spirit, you are lying to God. And that sin is always an offense to God before it is an offense to man. Peter doesn't say you've lied to men and that's really the grievous sin. He doesn't say, he doesn't say you've lied to the Holy Spirit, but really you've lied to men. That's not what he says. He says the opposite. He's not, he's, you've lied to men, yeah, but really the problem here is, is that you've lied to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. This is Psalms 51. David, after killing a man and having an affair with his wife, he writes Psalms 51, repenting, and he says, against you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. It's not that he didn't sin against Uriah or Bathsheba or everybody else that he lied to, but ultimately the lie, the sin was to God himself. And Peter says, this, this is what you have done. You thought you were, you were pulling some facade against men, but really you have lied to God himself. In verse five, and as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and he breathed his last and great fear came over all who heard. Yeah. And the young men rose up and wrapped him up and after carrying him out, they buried him. Could you imagine could you imagine how much more serious we would take our actions if someone like drops a check in the giving box and then just falls down dead? You know, like you try to not laugh. I don't know why that's so funny because it's so uncomfortable. But could you imagine if that was the case? And you know, this sort of immediate divine judgment is not foreign to us throughout scripture. There's the story in Leviticus chapter 10. We don't even know entirely what it means. Aaron's sons, the high priest's sons, Leviticus 10, Nahab and Abihu, they they offer strange fire before the Lord and they're dropped dead right there. It was unauthorized. They were, they, were, they, were, they were doing some ceremony out of turn and it killed them. The Lord struck them down. Another mind-boggling story is in 2 Samuel chapter 6, a guy named Uzzah who, you know, it seems like he was just trying to lend a hand. The ark is coming into Jerusalem and nobody touches the ark of the covenant. And one of the oxen trips and the ark shakes, and Uzzah puts his hands out to steady it. He touches the ark, and he drops dead on the spot. This is terrifying stuff. And our God who is good, and our God who is benevolent, and our God is kind, has his reasons. And there's a lesson here. There's one of these reasons here with Ananias and Sapphira. So he drops dead. And then an interval of about three hours, chapter verse 7, <clears throat> about three hours, his wife comes in not knowing what happened to her husband. Nobody told her. And Peter responds to her and says, tell me whether you were paid this much for the land. And she says, yes, I was paid that much. And Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. Peter doesn't give her a warning, but he does kind of give her an opportunity to, to clarify, right? 
Did you sell the land for this much? Have you ever been, have you ever been in that situation? You've done something wrong, and somebody else knows it, but they ask you. They give you a chance to fess up. And if you're anything like me, you never miss that opportunity. You just keep lying. You're like, nope, deny, deny, deny. Nope, that's what it was. I wasn't there. I remember my dad caught me with a cigarette one time between my fingers, and I told him again and again and again that I was holding it for somebody. <laughs> Who are you holding it for? A friend. Where was your friend? He was in the bush. This is actually what I said. He was in the bushes peeing. That's why I was holding his cigarette. It makes absolutely no sense. I just doubled down because I wasn't willing to admit that I'd been caught in a lie. She doubles down. Peter gives her a chance, doesn't give her a warning. She doesn't come in and he says, so um, your husband, eh, we know, no warning. He gives her a chance and she doubles down and she says, yes, the amount that you said, that was the amount. Oh. And so first and immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last And the young men came in and they found her dead and they carried her out and they buried her beside her husband and great fear came over the whole church and all over all who had heard these things. God God knew what Ananias and Sapphira were doing and the Holy Spirit called them out. And friends, I can tell you right now, sooner or later that is going to happen to you. If you're if you're sustaining some elaborate charade with the Lord and nobody here knows it, stop. You're losing. The Lord knows. Numbers 32, verse 23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. The Lord knows our hearts, and it's so easy. It's so easy. Not only with sin, but you know what? If you're, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and you're like, well, you know, and, you, and in your heart you know that you reject Jesus Christ, but you think, well, nobody else knows that and I'm gonna just kind of play along and I'm gonna show up and that's diligent and I'm gonna go to the Bible study and you know, maybe that will be enough, but I really don't want to accept Jesus because he, he gets into my business. Friends, he knows that. Nobody here may know. Nobody in this room may know. I've said this so many times, every single kid except one that I grew up with, all of us, there's like 10 or 12 of us that I could name off the top of my head, sat in church and we held our hands together and we minded our P's and our Q's when people were watching and as soon as we were behind closed doors, we were, we were, in, we were rejecting Jesus Christ entirely, comprehensively, from our heart, we were rejecting him. And it doesn't matter if we were doing drugs or sleeping around or whatever, it doesn't matter. The Pharisees weren't doing that kind of stuff, but they were rejecting Jesus Christ. And he knows it. You know, in John chapter two, there's this terrifying verse where it says that the the people believed in Jesus because of the signs that he was doing, but he on his part was not believing in them. It's because he knew their heart. It says that he knows what's in all men. They were interested in the miracles, but they weren't interested in him. There's a big difference. And so as a pastor and as a friend, I have to come to a text like this, and I do this a lot, so I'm not blaming the text. It's just, you have to, friends, check your heart. Check your heart. I can't do that for you. This is the word of the living God. You have to be honest and check your heart. Nobody can do that for you but you. Are you fooling yourself? Do you think that you have all the time in the world before you gotta get real with God or get honest with God or get good with God? Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead 
on the spot. Be sure that your sin will find you out. And the best way for your sin to come out into the open is to just confess it. Just tell everybody yourself. And you know, there have been, there have been times in my life, I, I, you know, I knew about this verse. I may not have been able to tell you where it was, but I knew that it was somewhere in the Bible. And I was doing something, either alone or with people, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, the, like you know, maybe most sins are going to get found out, but there's no way that anyone's ever going to find out about this one. It's impossible. There's no one around. There's no video cameras. I don't have an iPhone, so the government doesn't even know that I'm doing it. There's no possible way. But you know how those sins got brought out to the light? I confessed them. I ratted on myself. I told people, even when I didn't have to, because God bugged me. Oh, and if he's, oh, friends, if he's bugging you, don't, don't ignore him. Don't ignore him. There is forgiveness in a moment. If you're saved and your spirit is, your spirit is, being, is being caused to be in consternation because of God the Spirit because you're living in some rebellious way, listen, throw that stuff away. There's nothing but hugs and kisses for you from Jesus, but you have to get rid of that stuff. You have to get rid of it. It's causing a problem in your relationship. Grieving the Holy Spirit is, is part of what that, what that means. You're grieving a person, and he's going to bug you. Are any of you married? You have friends? You have kids? Man, my daughter's going through a leap right now. If you don't know what that is, it doesn't matter. But her sleep schedule's been thrown off, and I love my daughter so much, I would murder someone for her. And that's a confession. But boy, she's bugging us right now. She's bugging us, and we love her. If If you're feeling that, there's nothing to hold on to. Confess it. Let it go. Move on. Like this, like you don't need to do it. Peter looked at Ananias and Sapphira and said, why? It's so senseless. So your sin will be exposed. Ananias and Sapphira were tricking maybe Peter for a while, maybe some of the other people, but through the Holy Spirit, it was made aware what was going on because the Holy Spirit knew. God knows what's going on. So why didn't they have a chance to repent? It's a fair question. It's a good question. You have Peter time after time after time. He gets an opportunity to repent. Paul, I mean, my goodness, he had a really big opportunity to repent. Why not Ananias and Sapphira? Well, first of all, the the church, God's people are now his temple. We are God's temple. We are the presence of of the Lord here on earth. First Peter 2.9 says this, you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. First Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? <clears throat> One of the realities that's at play here is that the church has become the pillar of honesty and godliness to the people of Israel. They were the living church. God's presence is no longer in a tent or in a tabernacle or in the temple. He resides in his very people. And while that's a great privilege, the responsibility and the standard is also very high. And we don't take it very seriously. Remember in the Old Testament, The temple was surrounded by purity laws and washings and ceremonies and sacrifices that represented the, the need for sinlessness in the temple. And the deeper you got into the temple, the more and more washings had to take place. And when you got into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest was allowed in there one day a year. The 
the emphasis on holiness is huge in the Old Testament. That's why so many millions of animals were slaughtered. It's why Christ had to die because he requires sinless perfection to enter into his heaven. And now the temple is a bunch of people. And we get flippant. The, cer- the, the ceremonies of the temple represent a sinlessness that no human being will ever be able to attain, but that doesn't mean that we should just be flippant about it. And this is, this is the church era that I grew up in, and maybe you can relate to this. You're saved by grace, so do what you want. God doesn't really care. Jesus already died. His blood's already been shed. He went and he died and he rose again, so it's cool, man. It's not a big deal. He's not going to judge you. First of all, how disrespectful that is to the risen Christ is beyond comment. I don't even know what to say about that. And second of all, it fundamentally misses the reality that God changes our heart and that we should be offended by the things that offend him. And we will fall and we will fumble and we will fail and we will never be perfect this side of heaven. But at the same time, if your attitude, ask yourself this question, if your attitude about sin is cavalier and indifferent and flippant and I don't care, then the words of 1 Corinthians 13, 5 are for you. Paul writes, test yourself and see if you're actually in the faith. Because God the Spirit is not a wimp. And if you're deliberately living in some intentional, premeditated, sinful way, he will be in your heart directing you to the way of purity. Galatians 5, 17 says that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit are at war with one another. And if you can get off scot-free and go sin, Without impunity, even in your conscience, friends, I am asking you to check, check your heart. Check your heart. We shouldn't be flippant about sin. We shouldn't just be like, whatever. Our attitude towards sin, when I was growing up, and I think a lot of the church today is what, they, is what the theologians call antinomian, anti-law, anti-nomos. It's anti-law. I'm going to take my grace. I'm going to believe that Jesus died for my sins on the cross. And what that means is that he doesn't care what I do. So I'm going to, so I'm going to live in sin directly in, uh, directly opposed to what scripture teaches. And it's not going to bug me. Friends, that's not possible. You can live in sin, but the Holy Spirit will bug you. That Galatians 5.17 battle will be there. Colossians 3 says, don't lie to one another any longer. You've put on the new self which means you're a liar. You lie to people. Stop it. Stop lying. No longer lie to one another. Philippians 127 says, may your life be worthy of the gospel. I'm going to read this. This is Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25 and going into the first few verses of chapter 5. Ephesians 4 says this, therefore lay aside all falsehood. Speak truth, Ananias and Sapphira. Speak truth, each one of you, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals, he must steal no longer. But rather he must labor, labor, performing with his hands what is good so that he'll have something to share with those who are in need. This is a word to me, friends. I need prayer. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Ouch. My mom just laughed at me. <laughs> I know awful. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed so that it will give grace to those who hear. Here it is. Do not grieve 
the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind, be tender-hearted, be graciously forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has graciously forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. If you are, if you get, if you understand that you're a beloved child of God, that will change your heart. That will affect the way that you live. It will affect the lies that you tell. It will affect what you do with your money. It will affect what you look at with your eyes. And whenever you step into things that are contrary to the word of God, God's spirit will bug you. Praise God that he does that. That's an act of love. If I see my little girl walking to a busy street and I don't correct her, I'm a bad father. How much better of a father is the Lord himself? He will drag us away from those things, typically by convicting us in our conscience. And if that doesn't work, more drastic things may take place. He disciplines those that he loves, Hebrews says. So verse 3, but sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is, as is proper among the saints, nor filthiness, nor foolish talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather give thanks. Salvation is free. Salvation is by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. You cannot earn it. You cannot bargain for it. You cannot do enough good stuff to, to merit it. You cannot, do, you cannot abstain from enough bad stuff to achieve your place in God's perfect heaven. You can't do it. We can't do it. It's why Jesus came. The Lord knew it. That's why he sent his son to die because Jesus could live a sinless life and he did for us. But once we are saved, we are commanded to live differently. I, uh, I, I was, actually went down a rabbit hole because this woman posted online um, that Christians who believe that we are saved by faith alone are heretics. And, and I, I'd love to sit down with this young woman and ask her if she believes that Jesus' blood actually isn't enough. Like, we need to add to that. You look at Jesus on the cross and say, I've got what he's missing. I, the hubris is nauseating. But that's what she holds to. She holds to faith alone is not enough to save. You need to do stuff. You need to work. You need to earn it. On top of it, Jesus did 80%. You need to fill in the last 20. Uh, that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith alone. And once we are saved, that salvation, and her, her proof text was James. Faith without works is dead. And so her point was, see, faith and works, that saves you. And if you read that text, you could take that away if you don't read the rest of the Bible. What James is saying there is not that you need to add works to your faith, what he's saying there is that authentic, sa authentic saving faith, salvation that is brought by faith, faith that produces salvation, embracing the Lord Jesus, believing in him and embracing him, that faith, that salvation will naturally bring about action. It will bring about a changed heart. It will do it because God the Spirit comes alive inside of you and he changes you. You are born again. And so what James is saying is if you stand here and you say, I'm a Christian, and I read all this Bible, and, I'm, and I, you know, I don't like Romans 13, that whole obeying the government thing, nah. 
Uh, the sexual ethics, nah. The drunk with wine, I'd rather do that, nah. I want to live in debauchery. I want to live in sin. And a, a Christian's like, but the Bible says that the Holy Spirit doesn't want, I don't really care. I'm going to just pick and choose. What, friends, again, test yourself. We are not saved by works, but authentic faith, the hallmark of that is works. It's a changed heart. It might be doing something or it might be abstaining from something, but we become different people. Do you see the balance? It's nuanced. Your heart changes so your affections change. And my prayer, and this has become, this is the, like the most, thing, the thing that I am so thankful for in my, in my walk with the Lord is that the things that I used to do actually, di- they disgust me now. Like they, I actually don't want to do them. I really actually don't. Like, I don't want to eat blue cheese. I don't want it. I don't walk through the grocery store, pass the blue cheese, and go, oh, I wish I could, but I can't. You know, I might do that with the, with the Reese's Pieces, but I don't do it with blue cheese. I hate blue cheese. And sin is becoming that. More and more, it's becoming that. If I, if I, I don't remember the last time I did it, but if, like, I'm trying to think of an example just to be transparent. But if I lie, I can't sit with it. I can't sit with it. It makes me sick to my stomach. I don't want to do that. I confess all sorts of stuff because I don't want it. I hate it. And I hate, whenever I do want to sin, I hate that I want to sin. I, my prayer is that that continues more and more with me, and my prayer is that that would, that that would, that that would continue more and more with y'all, that, that this doesn't become some sort of legalist thing, that you walk away out of here tonight and you're like, well, Ian was just preaching a bunch of legalism. No, I'm preaching about new affections, and a heart that loves Jesus and loves the things that he loves and knows that when we fail, we can confess and he brings us home. We're not even gone from home. We're still home. We just need to run back into his arms. First John says that we, if we say we have no sin, we're liars because sinless perfection is not a thing. But if we confess our th- sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Is that Ella? I love you, baby. So this is, this is what's happening here. The, and this, this couple, this Ananias and Sapphira, I, I believe, and, I, and I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't ever read or listened to anybody who believes otherwise, that they were Christians. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and they were saved because they were part of the congregation in chapter 4, verse 32, that says this, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul and not one was saying that any of their possessions was their own, But for them, they had everything in common. Ananias and Sapphira were in this group. They were in this circle of faith. But they got caught up in a lie. They got caught up in temptation. Because they're a part of the temple, because they're a part of this new wave of Christianity, they were bastions of truth. They were the representation of honesty and godliness to the world around them. And what they should have been proclaiming is what We read in Acts chapter 2, whenever Pentecost breaks out, the Holy Spirit comes and everybody heard everyone else speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Ananias and Sapphira should have been doing that. They were were supposed to be preaching a a gospel truth that, that the Lord had acted perfectly in our favor and is absolutely to be trusted. The Lord is absolutely to be trusted, but they twisted reality. They twisted the truth to fit what they thought would better suit them. We're going to manipulate, we're going to be dishonest because 
the reality of the situation can be made more better by disobedience. That was their conclusion. Here they are, the, the, the new living temple of God, confessing to the world that God is good, that Jesus has risen from the dead, that there's salvation in no other name but his, and that he is perfectly to be trusted in life and in eternity, and then they twisted reality to suit their own purposes. They, they did the same thing that Eve did. They, they, they did not trust God. They twisted, they lied, and they manipulated to make things what they thought would be better. And for this, the Lord said no. He said no. To say it very simply, they knew better. It wasn't for lack of faith. They knew better. And they decided in a premeditated, set way to stick to their sin. They were not ignorant. They chose to lie to the Lord, and the Lord said no, and thank God that he doesn't do it all the time. If there is more of a reason, I don't know what it is. I don't know. I couldn't tell you comprehensively why the Lord chose to do this here and now and why he hasn't done it to me a hundred times. I have been a hypocrite of hypocrites, and the Lord never, never struck me dead. Thank you, Lord. All of us should be saying, thank you, Jesus. Confession is available at any moment. For the daily sins that we commit or for a heart that is completely opposed to him, confession is available at every moment. And, and somehow, this, this cleaning up of the sin in the church, which is what this is. A pillar, they, they were the pillar of the community. This is what the church is supposed to be like. And Ananias and Sapphira, in opposition to Barnabas in chapter four, committed a, the sin of hypocrisy and the Lord cleaned the church out. I mean, I, I'll tell you this, if, if the church was known for people being <laughs> killed for their sin because it's repulsive, right here and right now, I would have a much different attitude about sin because I, like everybody else in the world, sometimes just have this like loosey-goosey, it's not a big deal attitude. So what if I say that thing? So what if I engage in a little bit of gossip? So what if I look at that or I say that to him? So what? I, I really don't want that. And I am so thankful that this, doesn't, that this doesn't happen every day. But what it does teach us is that the Lord, in his love and in his grace and in his mercy, still takes sin very seriously. You look at Jesus on the cross, mutilated beyond human recognition, you know how seriously the Lord takes sin. And he wants to protect you from it. He's not keeping you from the fun. It's not as if you want to go out and have a good time and the Lord's like, no, because I just don't want you to. He's saving you from addiction. He's saving you from abuse. He's saving you from ugly, ugly realities that we can get ourselves into if we're left unsupervised. And he's supervising us. Thank God. Thank God. This is an act of grace. This is an act of love. They were believers, and I, I believe, and I will say it here publicly that I believe Ananias and Sapphira went to heaven, but that sin was punished. And it was an example to those around the church. Verse 12. Verse 11, great fear, again, a great fear over the whole church. Verse 12, now the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were happening to the people. 
And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people were holding them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers in the Lord were being added to their numbers, multitudes of men and women, to such an extent that they even carried the sick into the streets, and they laid them on cots and mats so that Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the multitude from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Just a, just a, just a technical note as we're closing out. Verse 12, the first half of verse 12 and verse 15 go together. The second half of verse 12 through verse 14 is, a par- is, a, is, a, is in parentheses. It's kind of a parenthetical clause there. As it reads in verse 12, now the, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were happening among the people, verse 15, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets, hoping that Peter's shadow might fall on them. Despite the mixed (laughs) reviews, the church is doing very well. People hear about this. Great fear falls on the church. The the legal authorities want the church to be condemned. They want the, the leaders of the church to be arrested, and they want them to be killed. And the church is causing a lot of ambivalence. There's There's this ambivalent spirit. No one dared, verse 13, no one dared associate with them. However, the people were holding them in high esteem. And then verse 14, many believers were being added, multitudes of men and women. It would make sense to me if Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead in the middle of a church service that the church would scatter and everybody would say, never mind. But God's kingdom is growing and it's counterintuitive to how kingdoms here grow. It has grown and it has flourished and only become stronger due to the persecution. It's growing and, 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 and multiplying despite what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And I think the lesson to, to, that we could take away here is that the real, the real threat is from inside the church. Josh White says it a lot that we can't cause a revival to happen, but it seems pretty clear in the scriptures that the people can prevent a revival from happening. It's not the out there people that we have to be worried about, friends. Those are, our, those are God's children that we need to go proclaim the gospel to in love and in compassion. Here, we have to be careful. We can, we can destroy ourselves from the inside. And many were afraid, didn't even want to associate with the church after this happened. And yet, still, by God's grace, the church grew. Verse 15, the, they brought them people out on cots and mats. What that means is that the poor and the rich. Cots were typically what poor people laid on. And if you were rich, if you had money, but you still had a physical um, malady, you would be on a mat. The poor and the rich. Jesus said, anyone who thirsts, come. All who are weary and heavy laden, come. Come. In verse 16, and so the multitude from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing the people who were sick and afflicted with unclean spirits, and all were being healed. In chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here in chapter 5, verse 16, we see that work continuing. People from all over this vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together. The gospel is still going forth. It's going out. It's getting stronger. More and more people are becoming Christian, more and more people 
are getting saved. And as I close, just my last two minutes, I want to remind us that all of this is because Jesus was persecuted. If we ever are tempted, and the devil will tempt us to distrust Jesus, to distrust God, to believe that this whole thing is a sham, we come to things like Acts 5 and we're like, I don't want it, I, don't, I hate it, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Let us not forget that this whole thing is taking place because Jesus was persecuted. The church flourished in persecution and the church exists because Jesus was persecuted unto death. Jesus is so interested in human flourishing that he put his life on the line to make it happen. Not only is he willing and able to aid human flourishing, he died to make it happen. And you know, if I'm honest, that's why chapters like this in the Bible that still like, I can read it, I can understand it to a, to a certain extent. I, can, I don't necessarily like it even, but I can understand like, well, the church needs to be pure, the temple needs to be pure, you're representing God to the world around you, and you do something like this hypocrisy and the Lord puts you down for it. I, I, I at least logically understand it. I don't like it, it is uncomfortable, but I trust what Jesus is doing. And because of him, I read this and I say yes and amen. I will preach that because I believe in Jesus. You may not like this, you may not like chapter five, but you cannot look at Jesus hanging on the cross voluntarily and say that he's unfair, or that he's mistaken, or that he's judgmental, or that he's quick to, quick to act, and not quick to think. You can't say it. It's an accusation that does not stick. It does not stick. Jesus on the cross is proof that he's crazy about us, and that he refuses to live without us, and that his invitation is to all. And that even despite persecution and despite sin, his kingdom is still going forth today because he is after saving people. Because he's good. Amen? Amen.